Welcome to the In All Things Podcast, where we host conversations with diverse voices about living creatively in God's created world. My name is Justin Ariel Bailey, and I teach at Dort University, which is home to the Andreas Center, the sponsor of this podcast. On this episode of the podcast, we are talking to acclaimed artist Makoto Fujimura. And as part of the celebration for these early episodes, we are giving away five copies of Mako's new book, Art and Faith. You can follow the links in the episode description or on social media to see how you can enter the giveaway. Thanks again for tuning in. A few years ago, our university had the privilege of hosting accomplished artist Makoto Fujimura. He spoke eloquently to the student body, exhibited his work in our gallery, and took questions at a smaller gathering in the evening. At the latter event, the first question from the audience went something like this. How does your art present the gospel? I felt myself cringe with embarrassment, and my embarrassment has a backstory. I teach a course on aesthetics, and part of the burden of that class is to free students from an instrumental view of art. In such a view, the only value of art is in ornamenting ideas, making messages more attractive, or selling products. Fujimura's art is non-representational. He rightly rejects the label abstract. And thus it was hard for this student to see how it could effectively represent the Christian gospel. Now I'm confident that Fujimura has encountered this sort of question more times than he can count. But if he was annoyed by the question, it didn't show. He patiently explained the connections between the extravagance of God's grace and the way he approaches his craft. I'm not sure if the student was satisfied with what he said, and yet the best answer was the artist himself. Here was a gifted artist generously sharing work that was profoundly human and unspeakably beautiful, even if the gratuity of the offering was lost on those it was intended to bless. Thankfully, for the rest of us, Fujimura has developed something like the answer he gave the student into a book. Art and Faith is part personal testimony, part theological aesthetics, and part aesthetic theology. Fujimura's aim goes beyond asking the church to take the art seriously. What he is after is a paradigm shift in the way Christians construe the life of faith and our relationship to the world. As the evidence of things not seen, Hebrews 11.1, 1, faith requires a disciplined imagination, the ability to see beyond ordinary human possibilities. As the human vocation, culture care requires our creativity, the commitment to unfold the potentialities of creation to the glory of God. The common thread is the centrality of the imagination as a site of discipleship. Christians have often taken apologists, activists, or politicians as models of cultural engagement. But Fujimura gives us reason to believe that our best models may, in fact, be artists. Makoto Fujimura is an acclaimed contemporary artist whose art has been described by David Brooks of the New York Times as, quote, a small rebellion against the quickening of time. He is the author of several books, most recently, Art and Faith from Yale Press. Mako, thanks so much for joining us on the In All Things podcast. Oh, it's great to uh, be with you. So I start my discussion of your book by recounting a story of a time a few years ago when we had the pleasure of hosting you at Dort University. Mm -hmm. And you gave a keynote lecture and a gallery talk in the evening. And during that talk, one of the first questions that you were asked was, 
how does your art communicate the gospel? And I recall cringing <laughs> in embarrassment, turning red, and uh, and yet you answered it patiently and eloquently, uh, connecting the extravagance of God's grace to your work. So mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you, you don't want your work uh, or any work reduced to mere communication of a message. And yet you also don't shy away from connecting your work to the gospel. Uh, mm -hmm. But you make a distinction in your book between a diminished gospel, what you call plumbing theology, and the more holistic and generative gospel. What do you mean by plumbing theology? And how can plumbing theology be filled out with something uh, that's better? Well, thanks for that question. Uh, uh, no offense to plumbers, by the way, when I <laughs> use that term, you know, there's always somebody in the audience who's a plumber and comes up to me. And I, I had this amazing tweet, uh, Twitter conversation with an actual plumber who's a third generation plumber. And he said, when you talked about, you know, plumbing theology, um, he, he also understood what it meant. But but then then I have a chapter or, or a section of uh, plumbers who, you know, who are generative and they they take their crafts seriously and so forth and he said you know I, he, he he wept because he, he said that's exactly what i want to be is a kintsugi plumber but um yeah when i think about uh that question uh which is often asked and it's kind of powerful course i guess you know <laughs> i i do almost expect it i take it as a sign that that's just a pervading way of thinking, instrumental way of thinking mm -hmm. about anything, not just the gospel, but, you know, is, is it worth it? I mean, education, right? I mean, people struggle with liberal arts education because, you know, I can't get a job when I graduate, right. which is not true, by the way. You know, studies have shown that, you know, liberal arts graduates do pretty well in the marketplace. But, you know, that's that's a common mis- um, uh, conception. When I get those questions, um, I kind of have different folder in my head of, you know, where to put it and how to respond to it. And it really depends on the context. But I do explain the reductivist uh, nature of modern thinking. And, and you know, postmodernity has certainly fragmented that further. So in order for us to understand integration of the gospel, which really leads to why the arts education is so important, right? It's whether you're Christian or religious or not, any kind of integration leads to um, an understanding of, um, the, let's say, a bias in the universe that, that is predicated toward love. And that thought right, is pretty much universal. And yet people often treat education, treat anything, even plumbing, as, as only a transactional, instrumental, mm. pragmatic, you know, what I call uh, utilitarian pragmatism, which is a reduced version of even pragmatism, you know, but, but, but it really um, is the assumption that we make today. And if you are a follower of Christ, and if you read uh, the Bible in any, you know, in any sense, not even going into deeper theology, you cannot come away with that sense because Jesus' presence in in the scarcity-ridden land, uh, you know, of a man from Nazareth, uh, which is. Um, Rightly called the Armageddon Valley, you know, because the east, uh, north, uh, east, west, uh, north, south uh, trading routes converged there, and therefore it was the most contested land, you, you know, uh, even in that region. And coming from that Nazareth, 
and saying the things that Jesus said, it's so radical to the understanding of this, you know, Darwinian struggle to survive or, or even to uh, have this instrumental practice, you know, just, just be practical or, you know, just, just do something pragmatic so you can survive notion, you know, Jesus says, consider the lilies, you know, <laughs> what is it talking about, right? And, and the, the extravagance, I, I mentioned so many times in the book of uh, Mary's nard being spilled extravagantly, generously, gratuitously. Um, and, and those accounts, which, according to Jesus, is the central aspect of the gospel, of the good news. And so what I call plumbing theology it's this idea that the Bible is uh, is there to fix the world, and we're we're um, uh, part of God's plan to uh, help people find salvation in Jesus, and uh, you know pray the sinner's prayer, and we go to heaven, and we we want to tell our neighbors because that's the good news. Well, that's not wrong, but it's it's also it's very incomplete, <laughs> and as uh, anti right ample theology tells us, and so so many you know theologians from Aquinas to uh, you know Multiman, but it, it, this is this is fundamentally how the modernist uh, uh, industrial way of looking at things have reduced the gospel into very instrumental, you know, salvation as a transaction, as if as if it's um, the, the only thing we're looking forward to is to uh, to be with Jesus um, when we are new creation in Christ, and 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 what what has happened, the new creation is already here, not yet fully, but here um, in 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 us certainly, but also in what we make. Uh, so it, you have to ask if you are fixing the pipes, why are you fixing mm-hmm. the pipes? What's going through the pipes? You know, and and when you start to think that way, you become very aware of the richness and the breadth and depth of the gospel, um, which goes far beyond this reparative work. You know, redemptive work is more than just repairing or fixing. It it actually we're not going back to Eden. We're going, you know, we're going to be part of a uh, new creation that we get to participate in this creation of the city. The garden of God, which which God is actually asking us to be partakers of of uh, you know imaginative creativity that is saturated with prayer and and humility and hope for 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 the new world. Yeah, that's beautiful. There's this sense that Jesus gives back more than sin can take away, and so if we're just sort of yeah. trying to deal with what sin took away and getting back to zero, then we have not even entered the purpose for which God. Is he right. creation? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. You said several things there that I want to ask you about. Um, yeah. So I'll get back to the liberal arts question and to the <laughs> plumbing question. Uh, but I want to ask you about this thing that you say already on page four. Uh, the subtitle of the book is A Theology of Making, mm-hmm. uh, which you describe as a matter of translating things into real objects and physical movements. And you describe it both as a form of knowing, but also as a devotional act. And then you say, when I explain to strangers the sacred dimension of creating art, sometimes non-Christians have an easier time grasping it. So all of us live in this utilitarian, pragmatic world, but why do you think it is that Christians have a harder time grasping this? What is it about the way that we've been formed 
and discipled that prevents us from grasping something that should be more intuitive to us because of the nature of the gospel? Yeah, that's that's, that's a great question. I think it, it would be different approach to answering that question depending on uh, whether you're Protestant, you know, Catholic, right. <laughs> or Orthodox. Um, but mysticism in, at the heart of our faith, I, I, I believe it is, um, has been exiled certainly uh, in, in in our time as something that was you know maybe not not rational you know and you you can't uh, win your argument for reason for God's existence or God's argument and and that statement alone right reason for God uh, it, it becomes primary the way that we prove to ourselves that you know as Christians we have chosen the right religion, you know, kind of thing. But that's not how the Bible speaks of the truth. Uh, you know, truth is fundamentally refers to the un un understanding of um, immovable reality of, of truth, rather than, you know, like God is not asking us to prove it, um, even though, you know, we, sh we should know. Well, you know, to defend defend truth, but, but um, truth is truth, whether you agree with it or not. So, so you know, it's not like we have to prove God's existence for God to exist. Uh, that that mm. that's that sounds ludicrous, but that's that's how the Christian Church has formulated a defense against all these, um, let's say, thought um, you know battles that perhaps we 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 had to fight in. Um, it, it really is kind of a premise that I think gets us in in a very precarious position, um, even even in, in in understanding that if we have to defend ourselves, that's not what we need to be doing, because fundamentally the strength of Christian argument, Christian uh, theistic argument, is that you don't have to prove it. Is that God doesn't need us to to, mm. to prove it, and and it's fundamentally uh, a way of presence in 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 the universe that every artist, every musician, every you know, uh, creative person taps into somehow, uh, whether they know it or not is is not you know not important because it's it's actually more important that people who don't cognizant who are not cognizant of divine mercy and religious inclinations have tapped into it. I mean that's that's the miracle that that's that's incredible to um, think about, and I find this true as an artist that whenever you walk into a creative space, whether it be a backstage of a modern dance dancer, um, or uh, the Holy Spirit is present there, whether the person accepts that or not, and 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 the, you know the Spirit's presence is so palpable that perhaps only a Christian can decipher it. Um, and explain it to the person who is actually making something that is transcendent and beautiful or even transgressive and and explain that the Holy Spirit is, you know, alive in your work in this way. Um, and I, I feel like that's that's a responsibility, you know, we, we need to curate in that sense. Um, so when I think about that, I... I do wonder why the Christian church has, especially Protestant church, has been so unwitting and unable to affirm the artist's inclination and, and to share in that common struggle to create something that is enduring and, and beautiful. Um, 
we have certainly in Protestant circles, exiled artists. Um, we have the spectacles. Uh, you know, we have we have uh, mega churches and and huge mega hit, you know, uh, Christian worship songs. And yet I speak to those artists on stage leading worship, you know, how are you doing? Uh, how, how's your heart? How, how, how are you, your sanctified imagination growing? And they start to weep, mm-hmm. right? So, so there's, there's a gap between what we have deemed to be something that is, um, you know, filled with the gospel, filled with the spirit, filled with uh, something that is, you know, that is missing, uh, in our theology, in our, the way we uh, understand uh, the church, the worship, um, you know, so I, I, I do make an argument in the book that the fruit of the spirit is manifested in the fruit uh, of what we make. Um, and that, that is the ultimate question. And in order to test that, um, the, the fruit, you have to eat it, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and you have to uh, be part of this um, uh, e- ecological f- framework through which we understand God's goodness and truth and beauty in the world. Um, and if it tastes good, then, you know, you we want to kind of trace back to like, why, you know, who made this and, and, um, mm-hmm. how can we honor that? And because God is honored here. Yeah, that's, that's, Really helpful. One of the, I think, primary things I walked away with from reading uh, this book was just a question that I asked myself and asked my children even, uh, what did you make today? And, uh, you know, on Sundays, we try to practice Sabbath and to turn off screens and and rest. And the thing I've realized is that my children, every day when they don't have access to screens, they always make something, you know, they play (laughs) or they um, you know, make a movie or they, you know, there's just this natural space that, that boredom leaves to creativity and (laughs) contemplation. And so I have been asking them, you know, on Sundays, well, what did you make today? And how that's so helpful in orienting, I think just even the everyday vocation of, of, of wanting to find whatever situation you're in and, and make it better and more beautiful. And one of my primary research questions that I walk around with is the question of how do you disciple the imagination? Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe we've excelled, especially in the Protestant church in discipling the intellect and getting the right ideas into people's mm-hmm. minds, mm-hmm. but we have had a really hard time with discipling the imagination. And so I'm wondering do you have any thoughts on that? Do you think it's primarily a matter of practices or attention or new paradigms? I mean, what, what would it take for us to uh, disciple, redisciple the Protestant imagination? Yeah, that's a great question, Justin. I, I, I love that, thinking about it. And I, I, I think you're right. There's, there's, you know, Sabbath is recreation, right? And, and there's tension in that because, you know, the ground is cursed. So we do have to work hard to make, you know, fruit appear. Um, so there's sweat involved and there's perhaps even tears involved, you know, in our daily task to make sure a family is provided for. For me, Sabbath is, is, is important because God rested uh, from making. Now, in our case, we are limited in our making and therefore we have to labor hard. You know, we have to do plumbing, you know, Monday through Friday. 
but what are we doing to generate something new into the world that that's that's not just fixing the world but creating something new and our children tend to just harness that naturally right so so the discipling imagination may be you know just being a child of god you know mm-hmm. and and having a community that says wow you made something you know that is beautiful has no intrinsic purpose whatsoever Mm -hmm. um you can't make a living doing this um you know and there's no like um even in terms of the power base that you're building in the world or resume uh, doesn't make sense and praise god you know like why that's 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 beautiful Mm -hmm. and and that kind of uh, attitude of you know trying to frame our children to keep their imagination alive, you know, when, as they are challenged and, 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 you know, it doesn't matter if they go to a Christian school, they, you know, they're going to be told that, you know, you're just imagining that, you know, that's, you're just going into your fantasy land that that's not important. Here's the, you know, the real important STEM curriculum that you have to master in order to get to a good college. Right. And, and I, I wonder how much of that is, being challenged today by technology because on one hand technology reduces our capacity to um, make with our hands in in a sense you know because we can um, with the these machine language and augmented reality we can we can do things uh, without actually getting our hands dirty but on the other hand you know technology is like a like a tool brush to me, brush is a technology, right? So I use a brush to execute a painting. Um, but, you know, what does that mean today to uh, exercise, uh, you know, to grow in a sanctified imagination? And I wonder, because uh, machine language and uh, deep learning, uh, you know, expertise is increasing every day, to master things that are more conversion tasks, like like driving a car, you know, um, the machines probably can do that much better than we can, you know, much probably safer um, someday. Uh, but so so, what do you do in a car when you're being driven by a car? You know, mm-hmm. then you have like like you're saying that when you're bored, <laughs> you know, there, there is huge opportunity. What kind of technology will allow us to create? while being driven by automated car, yeah. you know, and, and how do we grow in our imagination by uh, reading, you know, being able to access all this information, right. And in, in, in the universe really to be able to, uh, you know, read anything you want in that car and to, let's say you can create something, you know, that, that leads into uh, the fruit of our labor. Um, and, and that, that's the key is that, you know, today technology dissociates us from a divergent path because it is so good at convergent path. We, you know, we tend to think, well, that's what a machine is for, but how do you create a machine that helps us with our divergent thinking? Mm. And for that education, like liberal arts education is critical because you have you have engineers, I'm, I'm sure, adult, you know, uh, you have doctor, you know, med- uh, medical students who can actually think beyond the repair. And they can say, if I can come up with, you know, the certain uh, new paradigm for how we look at, let's say, building a bridge, you know, um, engineers used to be all about 
well, how do you build a bridge? You know, you go, you go, you know, freshman year to uh, by the time you graduate your senior year, you're supposed to be able to do it, right? Uh, execute that converging conversion task. But today you can't do that because by the time you graduate, the machine's going to do it better than you can, right? More accurately. And the 3D machine's going to pump out all these. So, so you have to ask yourself, like, what is a bridge? Yeah. So it's a question behind a question that you have to get to, even as an engineer. So the, the technology has caught up in so many ways that actually it revitalizes education because you, you can just say to freshmen coming in, their parents saying, you have to be an engineer because you need a job when you get in. Well, they can say to their parents, well, that's not going to help me. I need to be able to do theater because I need mm. collaborative generative framework where things are uncertain and things are unpredictable. And I need to be able to, you know, frame my thinking, knowing like what I know in technology and sciences and math. Yes, but it's more than that, right? You, I have to know history. I have to understand how, you know, um, thought patterns are changing and, and you know, there's parallel paradigm shifts that 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 take place in in history and i i have to understand uh, you know how do i ask that question behind the question you, you studied something like animal husbandry though didn't you yeah I, I was always interested in ecology and ornithology uh, mostly um i i was fascinated by um uh, biology and sociobiology. I, I i thought sociobiology was fascinating because it was interdisciplinary and eo wilson was just coming up with these ideas that, you know, like, like what is altruism in Darwinian universe? You know, it doesn't make sense. Right? So he, he was trying to, you know, frame those questions. And I, I, I find that, so, so I was more interested in the philosophical, as it turns out, you know, my father is a famous research scientist. So I, I began to take, you know, science courses that I was interested in, but. <laughs> yeah, that's really fascinating. Uh, you've answered my question about liberal arts um, thoroughly, <laughs> but let me, let me make another question. Uh, kind of spin on it. One of, one of my heroes is George MacDonald, um, mm -hmm. in large part because in his uh, writing, his most ordinary characters are the most poetic ones. And so he says yeah. that, you know, yeah. there could yeah. be a workman who paints walls in a hearty and hopeful spirit that has the same kind of creativity as the artist who paints canvases, which yeah. is what I take uh, to be yeah. when you talk about plumbing theology in a, yeah. you know, consiggy yeah. sense. Um, <laughs> So there are a lot of my students who balk at the talk of the imagination because right. they think I'm not creative or I'm right. not artistic. Right. And, and yet, like McDonald, you define creativity and art broadly enough to include all of us. So not all of us. In fact, very few of us will have art as our vocation, the, you know, the thing that pays the bills or whatever. But what would you say to those who think that all of this talk about the imagination and creativity is not for them? What does this mean for ordinary, ordinary life and ordinary work and ordinary uh, vocations? So when, if you're not making something, you become consumers. And typically what happens is if you're not making something out of love, you become consumed by fear. So I, I can prove to, you know, I, I do this uh, all the time, actually, when I speak at a church um, and, you, you know, there's diverse audience, not just artists, but many different types of people. I say, you know, be between the time you got in your car today and got to this church, um, how much of your time was spent on worrying about something or concerned about some some issue you know perhaps you were able to turn that into prayer but all of us are guilty of creating something out of fear and anxiety that doesn't exist 
Now that is a work of imagination. Now I can even give you a potent <laughs> example: the Capitol being, you know, uh, ransacked. I mean that that the conspiracy theory is a work of imagination. No matter if you believe it or if you don't. I mean this this is irrelevant to the question. You know, people are today caught up in this. Let's say you know many many ways that what university you know we we accept as fantasy or conspiracy or whatever begin to take over. Now that's that's true of all people. So it's not just people who storm the Capitol. That is that is why a use of imagination you know ha- has to um, be calibrated in in school, in church, and at home.、Um, use of technology. That's not the source of it. The source is the imagination, right? And and is it is it driven by fear? Is it driven by anxiety? Or is it driven by love?、Mm-hmm. Anything that is not driven by love does not lead to generative imagination. It leads to a kind of a dictatorial, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, contrived way that that limits humanity in general. So culture war is dependent. On that kind of reductivism, the reductivism that that exists, that you know, we we live in scarcity. We have to fight for every inch of our territory. What no matter which side of the ideology you live in, we cannot trust the other side. We have to demonize and demonize until they are reduced. In fact, when you do that, you're exercising your imagination to demonize yourself.、Right. So this is why. For anybody who resists this idea of training our imagination, has to rethink how are they using their imagination now, today, this moment. You know, and, and are they using it for love, to expand the territory into abundance and an infinite promise of God, or are you reducing it so that you are limiting your options, you're limiting possibilities? And by doing so, you're not being educated in in a way that will lead you into greater pastures that Jesus wants to take us to, right? So, so, so the critical thing is like, what is Jesus doing in that when when his sheep are trapped in you know in this area of malnourished imaginative zone? <laughs> Jesus says, "I'm going to open the gate. You know, you need to come with me." Outside, and that's what that's what happened to the disciples, right? They they were all pushed to to meet the Canaanite woman, you know, to meet,、right. you know, deal with the woman at the well. I mean, this is this is all disciples being taken out of their kind of、um, you know restricted、um, you know zone into a place of abundance and a, a, a wilder place、uh, because their imagination had to be. Recalibrated,、mm-hmm. and and that's primarily the work of, of Jesus. Is is that he takes his sheep outside? He says, "I may lose one of you. You know, <laughs> you might get lost, and it's dangerous out here. So you better stick together. You know, <laughs> but I I promise you, I'm going to get come and get you. You know, and 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 that's that's if you're an artist of any kind, you understand that. So <laughs> you know, you 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 hear the voice of the Savior." In that place of wilderness, but you're there because you see cultural nourishment all around you. You find transcendence there. You find beauty there. And and it, when when you start to see that actually Christians have the power, the、uh, God has given you authority. You know to to look at something and and to see through it. 
through the spirit's eye and to be drawn into things that that are you know relationally driven love driven rather than fear driven mm-hmm. you you grow in that capacity yeah that's an that's an incredible point that fear is the sort of misfiring of the imagination that is yeah. quite powerful you know i'm sort of yeah. thinking i hear a noise at my house at night and i immediately have this yes. fully formed image of what could be going wrong or one of <laughs> my kid i don't know where one of my kids is and i have this immediate you know yeah. imaginative Yes. fantasy that yeah. and and what does it look like for uh my imagination to be shaped by by love and by hope yeah. and yeah. um yeah. by faith yeah. rather than by fear and cynicism and despair well i mean george mcdonald will have a lot to say about that that moment right of of hearing something and tr- being triggered by fear um and many of these writers inklings writers wrote out of those fears directly right so mm-hmm. tolkien was writing against his experience of trauma you know lewis too Right, Narnia is entirely about being exiled from London because of the, of the trauma war, right. right? So George MacDonald too, they, they they're all dealing with trauma and fear, and they decided they're going to do something about this. They're going to write story that uh, you know against those fears. They were speaking against the the darkness, as as it were, through their mm-hmm. through their writings. Yeah. Can I ask you one more question? Yeah. Uh, you've sort of alluded to this already, but. Um, you know, the last 12 months have been really difficult for most of us. Uh, and one of the things you write about is this idea of this polluted river that's coursing through our culture. Yeah. Uh, what special role does a theology of making play in helping cleanse our cultural imagination and then build bridges in the midst of this very suspicious and polarized culture? Yeah, well, people have said that, um, you know, politics is downstream in culture, right? So, um, I have invested the, uh, my entire career uh, on upstream. You know, the, the, these uh, tributaries, pure waters, uh, where these beautiful wild trout swim, and uh, they they tend to swim in schools, um, and they're very highly selective. You know, in what they eat, right? Depending on the day, depending on the season, <laughs> and and uh, so that to me is a great example and they're beautiful you know they're beautiful to behold and so how what would it take for us to uh invest in upstream of culture rather than you know fight cultural wars downstream maybe you do need to fight cultural wars downstream because it's so pretty that you have to you know dredge the <laughs> dredge the pond or something but but you know but it's too late by then i mean mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to um, so, so that, that's, that's what I think about now, uh, 2020 and now 2021, it, it will shift paradigms, uh, in every, every sphere from education to, uh, business to, to culture. But I, I do think that many of the artists that I, I, I speak with, this has been a sobering time of reflection. Um, not every one of these artists have been productive, um, but that's okay too. Um, you know, I, I think this is a time when we pull back and look at what do we, what is it that we, we, we want to make? What kind of a world do we want to be part of? And just dare to swim upstream rather than downstream mm. and be selective, you know, um, and but but you know swim together right so so that so that we we can understand each other in in that um effort to speak and to create into um 
you know what it, what is a mess down downstream um and so that that doesn't change but i think i think it, it kind of amplified um the both the necessity of that and and the need for that you know when amanda goman right uh, the inaugural uh, youth poet um started to speak you could you could almost hear people exhaling mm-hmm. you know and and that kind of because words were so demonized and have been used as a weapon as it has been used to demonize people have, have been used to reduce people to limit the possibilities rather than you know as again in love in gener- generosity and and so when she started to speak it, it was as if this collective breath we, we were able to breathe in something when the words you know words meant something words could be it could be beautiful could be so powerful and and it actually spoke into the wounds and spoke into the divide spoke into the polarization spoke into everything that we experienced but she in a single moment could capture that and turn it into a, a possibility of generative language this, this divergent world you know in which there, there's abundance uh, once again and so that that is a example that i think most of us would would you know experience that and say wow uh, you know and and i i think that's that's a good sign you know to me that whatever last few years have done you know there would not be amanda goldman's poem if it wasn't for what happened you know being able to speak back with with you know with this kind of poetic power and and confidence and and, and integrated sense of you know, we may not agree with their philosophy or, but, you know, when we face them, right, the young 18-year-olds coming into colleges today, we can be sure that there's something happening <laughs> in, the, in their lives that, that is generative, that, that we can learn from, that we can, we can you know, um, uh, we can amplify and we can encourage. And, and to me that, you know, I call it Kintsugi generation, but the, these these younger people have seen everything from school shootings to you know to Columbine to 9/11 to natural disaster to everything, and 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 so they're saying something that 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 is the answer I think moving forward uh, that that we in our generation need to need to understand. Yeah, one of the things that's so inspiring about that answer is the idea that maybe what we do about 2021 is not the right question, but what do we do about 2071? You know, how yes. do we yes, sow into the soils of the culture so that That's we have right. something uh, right. in a few yeah. generations? Well, I could talk about this uh, for a long time, <laughs> but you've been very generous uh, with your time with us. Uh, the book is Art and Faith. I encourage all of our listeners to, to go out and get it and read it. Uh, it has a paradigm of God's grace and gift leading to generosity and generativity in the way that we make our way uh, through the world. So Mako, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be with us today. Thanks so much, I appreciate it. Man, every time I get a chance to learn from Mako, I come away energized and inspired to go out and make something. His work has been generative for my work, and I hope that this podcast is generative for whatever work you've been called to do too. And so whatever that work is, may you do it generously with all your might because there is so much good work to do 
and we get to be the ones to do it. So let's make something beautiful. Next time on the In All Things podcast, we are talking to professor and writer A.J. Swoboda about the relationship of faith and doubt and how to question your faith without losing it. Here is a sneak peek. So there's these kind of two worlds that I see forming right now in the church. Um, this kind of conservative world that's, that essentially demonizes doubt and says, don't do it. It's bad. It's evil. It's wrong. Um, stay away from it. Uh, and then there's this other side, the kind of progressive vision that actually valorizes doubt and almost seems to suggest that it's the only way to God. Uh, in order for us to have an authentic real faith, we have to have deconstructed historic Christianity. I'm really actually trying my best here to walk to path to pave a third way that we that we should not valorize doubt nor should we demonize doubt. Uh, I think doubt is a little bit like sneezing. Um, nobody like wants to do it <laughs> mm. <laughs> from time to time you do and we all know how awkward people look when they try to hold it in um, <laughs> that, that from time to time we all walk through it. It's not a question of getting people to do it or keep people from doing it. It's a question of what do we do when we do go through it. Thanks for listening to the In All Things podcast from the Andreas Center at Dort University. Original music is provided by The Ruralist, and thanks are in order to Shannon Bisher, Emily Rowe, Vaughn Donahue, and the production team at the Andreas Center. You can find us online at inallthings.org or follow us on Twitter under the name at in underscore all underscore things. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever podcasts are found. And if you find our content beneficial, please help us out by leaving a review and sharing with others. Thanks for tuning in.